Both Marion and I are glad to be back at the Academy meetings because one thing is clear. Here, what is important is brevity. We are supposed to talk very little, and we shall. An ancient sage gave the following advice to speakers. Let the introduction be concise. The conclusion, brief, and nothing in between. <laughs> well, what is the subject? Any subject goes, I was told. My obsession has been lately hope. Where does one find hope in this century? The century just began. What a century it is. After all, remember, all of you who are students, I understand you are all uh, seniors, you are going to college soon to, mean, to do graduate work. Uh, December 31st, 1999. It was a great day and a great night. All over the world, people were celebrating. Champagne, dancing, laughing. Why? Because we all had a feeling, at last, the 20th century is gone. Goodbye. That was the feeling we all had. Because it was a terrible century. A century that had so many maledictions, so many curses, almost, almost unparalleled in history. Why? Because we had two totalitarian uh, ideologies and two world wars, and so many other wars, and civil wars, and revolutions. Wherever you turned, there was despair. At least in the first part of the century, the first half. Later on, we had other problems. We discovered the deception, the betrayal of any ideal, any human ideal in the Gulag. Even those who in the beginning had hope for humanity as a, a, an option, as a kind of, of laboratory for, for good things, for fraternity, for peace, which communism used to be, at least in the very beginning, turned out to be a, a prison, a, a cemetery for all that was good, all that was noble in human aspirations. So where does one turn? And then we hoped the century will be gone, and now we can start all over again. And here we are, almost three years later, and we know that it's not finished. I think there are dozens and dozens of wars and conflicts, armed conflicts, still going on. Famine has not been vanquished, although it could be. Children still suffer. Uh, one, one mantra which I have in every one of my interventions is that every minute that we speak, literally every minute, somewhere in this world a child dies of disease, of violence, of uh, pain, solitude, hunger. And of course that is inexcusable, that children should die. Any time a child dies, and here we go with Dostoevsky, it calls into question even God's existence. If a child dies, that means something is wrong with creation and perhaps the creator. And we see now that we didn't do much. Personally, I feel, I feel let down by myself, by my generation. We, some of us at least, we tried immediately after the war to bear witness. That was our motto, that was our work, our philosophy, our moral philosophy, to bear witness. Why? Because we felt if we bear witness and we tell the tale, certain things will not happen again. Impossible. 
if we tell the next generations in plural where hatred is born, why it comes into life, and where it leads, there will be no more hatred, no more racism, no more anti-Semitism, no more fanaticism. We were convinced, strangely enough, in 1945 when the war ended, and my generation had all the reasons in the world to be terribly pessimistic and, and give up on anything and become hedonists. Why not? The hell with it. We paid our dues. Let's live a life of pleasure and joy. We owe nothing to anyone. Just the opposite. On a very strange level, we were very optimistic. We said history now will, be, will go in a different direction. And since he doesn't, I think we feel let down a little bit and we feel something is wrong. Where does we go? What does one do? What else can one do? I, I, I will say it bluntly. If, uh, if Auschwitz didn't put an end to anti-Semitism, what will? If it didn't put an end to racism, what will? If it didn't put an end to war, what will? So what else can one do? Therefore, young students, I'm a teacher. I teach, I love teaching, that's my passion. Before we came in, I told our good friend, Shimon Peres, who was one of the great peacemakers, and, and in his aspirations at least, and you will hear him. I told him, you know, I'll give you my time, you speak. I'll, you know, I'm a good listener. I come, I come to class to listen much more than to speak. In my class, I'm the best student because I listen to my students. And I listen because I know that their questions affect me. Their questions are important to me, yours. I am waiting eagerly for your questions because you are important. But you have so many good questions to raise. And I can tell you right now, your questions are better than my answers. Nevertheless, we shall listen and maybe your way of listening will be a reflection of mine, also, listening. What is it then? Culture, of course, we try to speak about the beauty of culture and art, naturally. Uh, what else does one do in school if not discovering the beauty of a cadence, the, the intensity of, of a poem? And then for the first time when you study philosophy, which is my field after all, when you study philosophy for the first time, you know that your life has changed simply because you repeat certain questions already raised by Plato or Descartes or Spinoza. And then you add your life. And life, your life becomes a question to yourself, but maybe an answer to someone else. And then you learn maybe a very important lesson as a teacher or as a student, that one cannot live without the other. That is the beauty in education. A teacher who doesn't teach, his or her life is lost. And a student who doesn't receive, his or her life is meaningless. So together, they do create already the very first kernel of society. And that society, is duty-bound to give hope. What way is there to attain hope? 
Here I will quote Camus, who was one of my favorite writers and philosophers. Camus at one point said, where there is no hope, one must invent it. So maybe for the next two hours, we shall invent a new way or an old way of giving hope by receiving it from you. Thank you. Uh, Newman Nahas, uh, I'm a student at Oxford. I cannot hear you. Newman Nahas, I'm a PhD student at Oxford. I did religious studies and now I'm doing philosophy. You'll be pleased to hear. I was wondering, oh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yes. I was wondering, how do you reconcile uh, for yourself the ubiquity of suffering with your faith in God? How I retained how faith in God? In the face of the sort and uh, scope of suffering that uh, faces that, that exists? This is, a, of course, a very important question to me, I imagine to you too, since you ask it, but in truth, I never really left it. I never divorced God. I have problems with God. I always had, meaning always, since the war. I come from a very religious background. And immediately after the war, when I went to France, to an orphanage, I re-became as religious as before. It's only after the, what psychiatrists call the latency period when I began rebelling, asking questions. And the questions remained open. I did not find any answer. All that I asked then, I ask now. In other words, where was he? Or where were you? What did you do? How is it possible? Uh, one cannot understand that tragedy with God or without God. So there is no answer to it. I can only tell you that I still have faith, but my faith is wounded. It's a wounded faith. But then there was a great Hasidic master, uh, certain Rabbi Nachman. He said that no heart is as whole as a broken heart. And I paraphrase it, no faith is as whole as a wounded faith. Can you hear me? Is it okay? Yeah. Um, my name is Emily Cambas. I'm from France. Um, I'm a student in international relations. Um, I was wondering, um, because this summit is about achievement and um, being able to put your convictions into something practical. And we heard several speakers saying that this does need determination and convictions. Uh, and I think all of us here do have these. But at the same time, do you think, um, how much do you think do we need also doubt and mistakes to achieve something? I, you know, your, it, your question comes from so far, I can't really <laughs> seize it. What is it, how, what um, one does to achieve what? No, I, I'm, can you hear me better? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just wondering, because this summit is about achievement, but, um, I mean, we heard several speakers say that achievement means convictions and determination, but to me, it also means mistakes and a lot of doubts. So, I just wanted you To me, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely, you know. I, we just came in, I said, I said to, to, to Jean Pérez, what am I doing, what are we doing here, really? You know, uh, it's true, each time we, we ask ourselves, what are we doing, really? Uh, do I have the answers I don't? 
I, I prefer to learn than, than to teach, but I teach in order to learn. And the word achievement for me is a very strange word. I don't think I've achieved anything because really not, and I'm serious about it. I've written many, many books, and I still think that I, I have not written the one I, book I want really to write. And so it will come, but then maybe we'll talk about achievement. <laughs> one more question, and that will be the achieving end. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Brett Labresco. I study here in the United States. Um, first, I just wanted to thank you for speaking such inspirational words and also for writing Night, which had a major impact on uh, my life, my career path. Uh, my question is, how can we bring hope to those around us on a daily basis and on a personal level? It's almost simplistic what I'm going to tell you, but I think it, 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 it can have a meaning. If I think of myself alone, I have the right to despair. If I think of you, I don't. It's only other human beings who can push me to give up hope. And it's only another human being, be it my son or my wife or my students, known or unknown. I speak about students, not about my son, but unknown. That means only another person can give me hope. Alone, I have no hope. And therefore, it is the otherness of the other which must play a moral role in my moral universe. Thank you.